0: All right, join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Every time we get to a new chapter, it feels like it's a bit of a milestone, even if it really isn't. And so, Paul's letter to the Corinthians so far has dealt extensively with a singular issue, and that is the way that worldly philosophy and wisdom has infiltrated their church, it has affected... They're teaching, and what we need to be reminded of over and over and over is that what we believe is going to affect what we do. And so that is exactly what I'm finding to be true as I study this book of 1 Corinthians. And so some of the problems that have surfaced so far as a result of the influence of human philosophy and wisdom is that the church was guilty of prioritizing certain leaders over others and that was creating friction and factions within the group. There was infighting about who was superior and who needed to be followed and who needed to be ignored. Paul has addressed the morality issues that began in chapter 5 with the man who was guilty of incest had his father's wife and was apparently cohabitating with her. He's also got... Gotten into the practice of temple prostitution and how the Corinthian church had been willingly participating in that. We saw that in the latter part of chapter six. We also saw how in the early part of chapter six the believers were willing to sue one another without any care or concern about their well-being, after all litigation was a bit of a sport, it was entertainment within the Roman world, and it was not uncommon for people to sue one another at the drop of a hat in order to exercise what they understood to be a fundamental right to exert their authority and their rights over and against others, even if it was their brother and sister in Christ. So. The Romans, excuse me, the Corinthians were products of the Roman culture just as you and I are products of the American culture that we live in and what we need to do is be aware of how our culture is influencing us, affecting us, minimizing the truth of God's word and enabling us to have some absolute truth or standard apart from God's word that drives the decisions and the direction their life takes. So it is probable that the Corinthians had unique issues and challenges that were theirs and not necessarily a part of the Roman world as a whole, but there were some consistent things within the Corinthian world as was inherited by the Roman culture that they lived in. I was not aware of this until my study time today, or this week rather, but In the Roman world, there were four types of marriage. Listen to this. This is crazy. The first one was called tent companionship. Tent companionship was the most common common type of marriage among slaves. Slaves were considered to be subhuman property of their owners, and the owners allowed this type of marriage, but... The owners also had the ability to undo that arrangement if they chose. They could shorten it if they desired to do that. They were free to separate them or to arrange for other partners to enter into this tent companionship. And he was also able to sell one of the others who would be a part of this tent Companionship. So think about that. Think about being with this person you consider to be your spouse, and somebody else saying, "I'm selling you, and I'm bringing in this person." Wait a minute. You were a slave. You had no rights. You had no thoughts. It didn't matter what you what you wanted or what you preferred. Your owner was the one who made those decisions for you. And I didn't really think about this, but many of the early Christians were slaves, and some of them had lived in this type of marriage relationship. And it's probable that as Paul penned this letter to the church in court, that some of them were actually living in this kind of marital relationship in the now. The second kind of marriage relationship was common law. Now, we're familiar with this. This is becoming more and more pronounced. I didn't research this, but it's probably standard in most states. There may be some holdouts, but in general, if you're living with someone, you can claim them as a common law partner. So, in the Roman world, if you live together for more than one year... It constituted a common-law marriage. Now, there was a loophole. If a woman did not want to be in what would be considered and agreed to as a common-law marriage, she would leave for three days at the end of that 362-day period, and she would live somewhere else for three days and three nights, and then enter back in to that common law type of arrangement. And in doing so, she would maintain some semblance of freedom. Because in the Roman world, as as it was in most ancient cultures, the husband exerted more authority over his wife than what you and I would be familiar with today. The third one doesn't have a modern English explanation. In the Latin, it is... Compensio in manum, and in this marriage, a father would sell his daughter to a prospective husband. Now, this might sound like an arranged marriage, but that's not what it was. It was very different. It's an arranged marriage. Typically, in the ancient culture, had some kind of a dowry that would be paid, and that's not what this was. This was considered a contractual sale. You would contractually sell your daughter to a husband or to an entity, if you will. I don't know exactly how that worked its way into the world, but I would expect that I wouldn't want to be a part of that if I was a woman and my father was going to sell me. So this was not a very enjoyable aspect of the Roman world in what marriage might look like in that culture. The fourth one is the most elevated form of marriage and was reserved primarily for nobility. And this kind of marriage is called the confaratio, and it closely resembles our modern Christian wedding today. Very, very unique, very, very different in the Roman world. It was the only one that had an official ceremony and it was much like what we would experience today. There was involvement by both families. There was a matron to accompany the bride and there was a man to accompany the groom. There was the exchanging of vows. There was the wearing of a veil. There was the giving of a ring worn on the third finger. There was a bridal bouquet. There was a wedding cake. But this kind of ceremony was unique and it was reserved for the upper echelon of society, Most people did not engage, most Romans, Gentiles anyway, did not engage in this kind of a wedding ceremony. Now, there were some differences within the Jewish wedding experience, but we're talking about a Corinthian church that was predominantly Roman, although there were Jewish converts that were there. So... This was very different from the other weddings that were common of the day in that it held an official ceremony. And in the Roman Empire of Paul's day, much like in our day, divorce was very, very common. Even amongst those who enjoyed the rarest of marriage, where there was the big ceremony, and historians say that it was not impossible for men and women to be married and divorced 15 to 20 times. That's how low a view they had of marriage. That's how commonplace women were in this arrangement and how ungodly marriage really was in the Roman world. So, there were people who had been married and divorced multiple times and as this experience became the norm within the Corinthian church, some believers, as indicated in our passage today, had believed that being single and celibate was more spiritual than being married, and they derided marriage entirely. Now, think about this in our day and age today. You know what a lot of 20-somethings are saying? Well, why do we need to have a piece of paper to legitimize the way we feel about one another. Well, that piece of paper is a binding agreement that takes place between you and God, even if you're not a believer. And it carries with it expectations and stipulations. So, in our day, marriage has lost its sacredness. And while it's probably uncommon for us to meet people who have been married and divorced in the teen times. Divorce is very, very common, and marriage has been replaced with cohabitation. It has it, Now marriage has a very low standard of notoriety, appreciation within our culture today. So within the church of Corinth, this circumstance they found themselves in was difficult and perplexing, and it created questions that Paul was attempting to answer in this letter. Questions like, what do we do now since we are believers and we're in this marriage relationship? Should we stay together as husband and wife if we are both Christians? And should we get divorced if our spouse is an unbeliever? Should we become or remain single? Now think about this. This is a culture where there are 50 identifiable Greek philosophies, or sources of truth, or paradigms with which we are to live our lives, and there's not going to be an agreement about those things, and so Christians are really left scrambling trying to figure out What is right? What is wrong? What does God want me to do? What is pleasing? What is disobedient? Etc. Etc. And so Paul will begin to address these questions in this letter. So the marriage dilemma sets the stage for what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And since marriage is instituted and ordained by God, it is imperative that we understand how God's people are to live in light of what He says about the subject. Let's read together. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1-7, through the first part of our evaluation of marriage among the saints. God's word says to us, Now concerning the things about about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time... So that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Now the first thing I want to say is this. This is not a comprehensive treatise on marriage. It is Paul's response to specific questions that related to marriage as we're going to see in a moment. The first seven verses, Paul deals primarily with the issue of should I or shouldn't I get married? And the answer to this question in these verses has to do with sexual immorality as a continuation of the end of chapter 6. Now, we often look at passages of Scripture apart from the entirety of what the book might say. And in doing so, we lose the flow of what the writer is saying. So Paul has gone on to great lengths to talk about the fact that our bodies are not ours to do with whatever we want. Our bodies belong to the Lord. We are to glorify God in our bodies. He's dealt with immorality as it related to the practice of temple prostitution and how they were feeding their sexual appetite with temple prostitution. Constitution and who knows what else. And so as a continuation of that idea, he now applies the problem of immorality within the context, of uh, the questions that he was asked as it relates to marriage. So we're going to begin with an introduction because the very first part of verse 1, in my mind, kind of stands alone, and I want to treat it as such. Verse 1a, "...now concerning the things about which you wrote." So this verse tells us that Paul is writing to them in response to a letter that he has received from them. As well as writing to them because of the reports that he had heard from others, as we read and studied in chapter one. So it is quite possible that in the very first letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, which we do not have a copy of, has caused them to ask him questions that he is now going to address in this letter that we do have a copy of. So the letter that Paul is referring to, that he has received from them, he references at the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16. He says, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achacus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. So these three individuals very likely hand-delivered the letter from the Corinthian church to Paul, to help him understand the questions that they had and he is now responding to this. So that is the very first part and it kind of stands alone. So number 2 in our outline we're going to look at this. Immorality is to be avoided. Now this is not apparent in the word usage that we have here verse 1b. Paul says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now what does that mean? On any given Sunday, I will shake hands with virtually all of the women that are here, and I will hug many as a way of lovingly greeting my sisters in Christ. So is that what Paul means? That's not at all what Paul is talking about. The phrase, to touch a woman, is a common Jewish euphemism for sexual intercourse. In the same way the Old Testament would say, he knew his wife... Jews would say, to touch a woman. So as an example of this, all the way back in in Genesis, when Moses was going into the land that God was going to show him, he came across King Abimelech, and he introduced his wife Sarah as his sister, because he was afraid that King Abimelech would kill him and take his wife for himself. So he lies and he sets up the king to do this despicable thing, but God speaks to the king in a dream and here's where we see this phrase used in Genesis 20 verse 6. I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore... I did not let you touch her. So in some way that's not as clear in the book of Genesis as it would need to be for us to understand this phrase, something happened. King Abimelech heard from God and said, Don't do anything to this woman. She's not who Moses says she is. I don't want you to sin against me. Therefore, I'm not going to allow you to touch her or to have sexual intercourse with her. The phrase to touch her is also used in a similar way in the book of Proverbs and also in, In the book of Ruth. So, what Paul is saying is this it is good for a woman and a man to avoid sexual immorality. Doesn't matter if you're married or if you're single, you are not to touch a woman. If you're married, you're allowed to know your wife. You're allowed to touch your wife. Paul doesn't talk about it in context of husband and wife. He talks about it in the context of man and woman. So it means that if you're not married, you should not engage in sexual activity. Have you heard people say, well, why shouldn't I do that? Where does the Bible say that? Well, it says it in many places and in many different ways. And this is one of the ways that God says this. You are not to touch a woman. It means you're not to have sexual relationships with that woman unless she is your wife. He does not say, however, that singleness is the only good situation or that it is a better condition or that marriage is in any way wrong or inferior to to singleness. Now remember, in the context of what Paul is saying, he's talking about marriage and singleness. He's talking about sex in a marriage relationship and sexual immorality outside of a relationship. So sometimes we look at Scripture and it says, do not do this. And it does not automatically mean that the flip side is true. So by Paul saying it is not good for a man to touch a woman, he's not saying that it's an inferior condition for a man and a woman to be in a marriage relationship and to engage in this sexual relationship. In fact, God says quite the opposite. In Genesis 2.18, it is not good for a man to be alone alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So companionship is good. It's not superior to singleness. And he also says in 128, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. So God has not said anywhere that singleness is superior and that sexual relationship is inferior for man. In fact, God has said it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And God says be fruitful and multiply. So very clearly, God blesses marriage. He institutes it and ordains it. And He gives us the freedom to engage in a sexual relationship within the construct of of marriage marriage is a means to companionship, and marriage is the only way that we can engage in a sexual relationship and not be guilty of sexual immorality. Now, Paul probably says it this way because in Paul's day there was a Jewish tradition that taught that marriage was the ideal state and that singleness was disobedience to God's command to have a helper suitable and to be fruitful and multiply. So they took the instruction that God gave and they flipped the coin and said the opposite must be sin. It doesn't say that at all. God says be fruitful and multiply and I'm going to find a helper suitable for you. That does not mean that singleness is better or equal to marriage. It does not mean that sexual relationship in a marriage is a bad thing. So it's also possible that Paul is addressing what might have been the practice within the Corinthian church, and that is this reaction against past sexual sin and looking at celibacy as the ideal or true state of godliness. Now what's hard for us to piece together is the Roman culture that was so deeply ingrained in them. Paul acknowledged that singleness is good, but he does not say that it is a more spiritual state or more acceptable or that it is more acceptable more acceptable to God than marriage is. So I'll reference this again. So remembering that in the Roman world They considered the physical body, the physical world, to be basically evil. And so he had some within the church who were feeding their, their sexual appetite with any number of sexual experiences. And those who had been engaged in a sinful sexual practice may have reacted against that and said, it is better to be celibate, therefore, I'm going to avoid sex altogether, even... If I'm in a marriage relationship, I'll flesh this out a little bit more cleanly as we go through this. So the second thing, excuse me, the third thing that Paul says in this is singleness is difficult. So we are to avoid sexual immorality and Paul says singleness is difficult. Verse two, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Now, if you were to read this verse all by itself and not understand anything about the culture or the context, you might come to the conclusion that everybody in the Corinthian Corinthian church was immoral and Paul's suggested solution for solving the problem of immorality was just go get married. That's not at all what Paul was talking about. Paul is stating the obvious singleness, and celibacy are difficult to maintain. If you have grown into a young adult, and you have had as a part of your intense desire to be in a marriage relationship, and to enjoy all that comes along with that, and to have children and you come to the stage of your life where you feel like you're ready to engage in this marriage relationship, and God has not allowed that or blessed that to your life yet, I can assure you that singleness and celibacy are very difficult. Do you remember the day? Do you remember the period of prolonged singleness? When all you wanted to do was to be married and and to have a family and to have kids and do all that kind of stuff. Now, you may have changed your mind on some of that after all that's come to pass, because after all, kids are not all they're cracked up to be. But, singleness and celibacy are difficult to maintain. When sexual desire is unfulfilled and very strong, there is great temptation to satisfy those desires, and outside of a marriage relationship, the only way that can happen is through sexual immorality. So if you're married, you can engage in this sexual relationship, and it's not immorality. So some people mistakenly say, well, I'm going to get married because then I can have all the sex I want. Well, that's not what Paul is saying, and that's not real life. So what is especially true in society, our society, and in the Roman society is this. Where sexual license is freely practiced and glorified, celibacy and singleness are incredibly difficult to maintain. I remember after I was saved, recognizing... Recognizing how promiscuous everything was around me. TV commercials, magazine advertisements, songs on the radio, just everything everywhere promoted sexual freedom. You know, we have a period in our culture which we call the sexual revolution where all of the quote-unquote old-timey, archaic restrictions about sex and marriage were were put aside and now we're liberated and free and what's been the result of that? Oh. The escalation of sexually transmitted diseases has skyrocketed as a result of sexual liberation. The way women have been forced into sexual practices has not stopped in our modern culture. So, I, I'm going to get off track on there. So, wherever... Sex is freely practiced and is glorified outside of marriage. Singleness and celibacy are going to be incredibly difficult to maintain. So Paul is not saying that marriage is God's escape valve for our sex drive, he has much too high a view of marriage to reduce it to something like that. And we'll see a little bit of that in our passage today. And remember, this is not a treatise on marriage. What Paul is doing is simply acknowledging the reality of sexual temptation within singleness and to acknowledge that they have a legitimate outlet in marriage. Therefore, Paul says, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have their own husband. In the context of a marriage relationship, God has provided a way for us to enjoy that in a way that is not immoral. It's a good thing that God has allowed us to enjoy. So, as a as kind of an explanation of this, in... To talk a little bit about the view that Paul has of marriage, because all of this will come from him, is that Scripture gives, gives several good reasons for marriage. The first one is procreation. Paul talks about this very loosely, and as we've already looked at, God says in Genesis one twenty eight, be fruitful. And multiply so one of the purposes of marriage is procreation. Secondly, one of the reasons for marriage is partnership. As we've already looked at in Genesis 2:18, it's not good for man to be alone, therefore I will make a helper suitable for him. And so God designed in this unique relationship that the two become one flesh. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. So there is this unique partnership that is to exist in the marriage relationship, this bond of oneness, which makes a sexual relationship outside of marriage very, very different because there is a bond created in that sexual connection. And then the third purpose that we see in marriage, as we've just looked at, is purity. In verse 2, marriage is the means to keep us pure from sexual immorality by enjoying what God has provided and blessed us with within the context of of a marriage relationship. But it's not just about the purity. It's about the entire purpose that God has for marriage. And it's not just in these three things that I have enumerated for us in our time here. So although singleness is good, it is not superior to marriage, and it has temptations that marriage is designed to resolve. Now, number four in our outline is marital responsibilities. Now, these three verses give us some insight into some of the views and practices regarding sex within marriage. And it's probable that some men and women held a view of the superiority of sexual abstinence altogether, even within marriage. So Paul gives instructions here that remove the practice of celibacy from within a marriage relationship and also explains the marital, the marital responsibilities. Now remember, a widely held view in this culture, as I mentioned earlier, was that the physical body is evil, therefore its appetites and its desires are evil. And if you're in a marriage relationship and you desire that, that sexual experience and that therefore is also evil. So there's a mixture of reasons why Paul is dealing with this issue. Probably been brought out in the letter that he has received, and also with some of the cultural predisposition that the people had. So, believing that to be true, abstinence would be a superior spiritual state, even in marriage, if you believed that sex within marriage was evil. So there's three responsibilities that Paul outlines for us in these verses. So in these responsibilities, we're also going to see that Paul has a unique and elevated view of women which would be very uncommon in his time. I have often heard Paul referred to as a chauvinist because of some of his teaching within the book of Ephesians and also in Titus. But here we can see very, very clearly, as I believe we see in the book of Ephesians, that Paul held an elevated view of women, which was very, very unique for his time. The first responsibility that we see here is mutual fulfillment. Verse 3, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. So Paul emphasizes the mutual duty that each has to the other, and it's not a coincidence that Paul identifies that the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife first. That communicates an elevated view that Paul has of the woman. Now, you'll notice that Paul emphasizes the duty to each other. It isn't just about the man. It is equally about the woman. Now, remember this. This is, to every extreme, a male-dominated society. That's one of the reasons why a woman in a common-law marriage might choose to leave the home at the end of that year for three days, so there wouldn't be a contractual obligation. She would have maintained some semblance of freedom. And although this isn't the most accurate way to express this, it was in a sense her prenuptial agreement from being absolutely controlled by her husband if she chose to leave for three days and therefore maintained independence from what would be understood as a common law marriage. So, Paul does not say... Woman, fulfill your duty to your man. That would be chauvinistic, wouldn't it? That would be somewhat insensitive to the woman, wouldn't it? That's not what Paul says at all. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. There is this mutual fulfillment. Now what isn't obvious to us is the word duty. The word duty literally translated as debt. I, I never would have thought about it like that. So, husband, fulfill your debt to your wife, and likewise also the wife, her debt to her husbands, to her to her husband. Husbands and wives have a debt of obligation to one another. Sex is a responsibility within marriage, and the responsibility is toward mutual fulfillment. Now those of you that are in your 40th and 50th years of marriage, I would imagine hearing this in your first five years of marriage would have been pretty uncommon wouldn't it? because in the 50s and the 60s and even in the 70s there was this idea that sex was a male thing and woman you just had to do your thing and you just have to you just have to find a way to endure. That's not what Paul says at all. Paul's talking about a mutual fulfillment that is equal between the husband and the wife. Secondly, the responsibility we see here is mutual authority. This verse contains perhaps the most striking statement Paul makes in this section, and it proves the high regard he has For women. Now in Ephesians he makes a very striking statement when he says, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. But that kind of gets lost because it's prefaced with, wives submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. Well wait, what's all, and then we get all ruffled by that. But Paul says which was revolutionary in the day Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Here he says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And the barbaric husband says, your dog, right, do I do and Don't you forget a woman. Great. Right? That's not what Paul stops. Paul says, and likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now wait a minute. In this culture... Women were just a little higher than the slave. The slave was subhuman. The woman was human, but she was really perceived to be more like property than something to be equally equally valued and treasured and respected and loved. And that's why what Paul says in Ephesians ought to be a banner in the ground that says, Paul was not a chauvinist. He held women in a high regard. And here he says... That the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Husbands and wives have an equal authority over each other's bodies as it relates to the sexual relationship. Now, we can probably take... This to the extreme in either of the ways this would be implemented in a husband or in a wife's life. It does not mean that you dictate what they wear and how they do their hair and what they eat and how much they exercise and all that kind of stuff. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about within the context of this passage, mutual authority over one another's bodies in the marriage relationship as it relates to sex. Now, this is true because of the principle of oneness. Think about that. If you are one with your spouse, neither is better, neither is inferior, neither is worthy of respect, and unworthy of respect, but there is to be this mutual authority towards the goal of mutual fulfillment. The husband belongs to the wife, and the wife belongs to the husband because they belong to one another in oneness. This does not mean that one can oppose their will upon the other because the principle of oneness means that if it's bad for either of them, then it's bad for both of them. Now, I'll be very honest with you. I have heard stories. I've never experienced this in my own life. I've done quite a bit of counseling in my life. I have heard stories of one of the marriage partners saying to the other, you know what, I would like to spice up our life and I would like to introduce someone else into our marriage relationship. Can you do that? Well, it says right there that you all got... Blah, blah, blah. Well, that's not what it means. Mutual authority towards mutual fulfillment means that whatever is taking place within the context of a sexual relationship is either good for both or it's bad for both. Just because you are the man or just because you have all the money or you have all the authority or you have all of the something that you brought into your marriage relationship does not mean that you can impose your will upon the other person because if it's bad... For them, then it's bad for you. Oneness is an important principle that governs how we understand these responsibilities. Thirdly, we see in this responsibility is mutual pause. Verse 5: Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time. So that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the phrase there, stop depriving one another, speaks... To what is very probably the current practice or the current issue within the church. Some had adopted a view of total abstinence even within the context of their marriage relationship. So think about this. That word deprive someone something is to withhold something that is desired and is also good. Now those got to be together. To deprive someone means that you want it and that it's also good. This is what we do. Excuse me. So withholding something that is bad from someone is not depriving them. It is what? It is protecting them. Isn't isn't this what we do as parents? Our kids want certain things And we say I don't think that's a good thing For you to have I'm not going to give that to you Not because I want to deprive you But because I want to protect you Isn't that exactly the lie That the enemy told Adam and Eve In the garden? God did not say that God's not going to do that God knows that in the day you eat, your eyes will be open, and then, then you will see all that God is depriving you of. So to deprive someone of something is to withhold something that is good that they desire. So agreeing... Excuse me, but there's a principle to temporarily setting aside this marital duty as indicated by the other phrase in this verse, agreement for a time. So... I'll read this as a whole. I didn't quote it as a whole. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time. So there is a temporary setting aside of this marital duty, and it's a mutual agreement for the purpose of something spiritual in your life. So when the spiritual emphasis has passed, you are to come together again so that neither would be tempted to fulfill those sexual desires in a way that would be considered immoral and not pleasing to God. Now, there are other reasons that it might be necessary to temporarily set aside this marital duty. You can have sickness. You can have extreme grief or sorrow. You can have life circumstances that require full attention and commitment. And that part of your marriage relationship is just the last thing on your mind. So Paul is not trying to create a singular reason why mutual agreeing for a temporary period of time is an acceptable or an agreeable thing that could take place. But again, the principle is this should be mutual for a limited amount of time and is never to be used as a pretense for spiritual superiority or as a means of intimidating or manipulating your spouse. I guess we're probably somewhat familiar with that practice within a marriage relationship is depriving the other of sex as a means of power over them or to manipulate them to get something that they want. And that's not at all what Paul is saying is the reason that this should be mutually agreed upon for a temporary period of time primarily for a spiritual purpose, coming together in prayer, and then understanding there might also be other ways that this could be uh, influenced in, in, in a marriage relationship. So the last one, our last point in the outline here is this. Singleness is a gift. Now, I need to do this because it's part of the challenge of the passage. Let me read this verse. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. That verse is a non-unanimous way of understanding what Paul is saying. Most believe that it is referring to what Paul has already said about marriage. Some believe it's what Paul is about to say about marriage. So depending upon how we looked at this verse, we're either looking at what Paul says previously, or what Paul is saying after that, And it could be applied if we looked at it afterwards in two ways. One, verse 7, as kind of the end of the application, or verse 7 leading into a fuller discussion of what Paul is saying as a quote-unquote concession, not a command. So there are, there are some that believe that this is a transitional verse that leads forward. Most believe that it is a verse that applies backward, and I'm going to treat it as such as an explanation of what Paul has already said as it relates to singleness and what Paul is now about to say about his own singleness and this not being a transitional verse that goes on from 7 all the way to the end of the chapter. That's my preface to this as kind of a segue to what we're looking at. So, singleness is a gift. Verses 6 and 7. But this I say by way of concession, not of command, yet I wish that all men, were even as I myself am, however, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So the word concession here means that what Paul is about to say has not come to him by specific and direct command from the Lord. That doesn't mean that this is an op-ed statement by Paul. It simply means that in all of the divine revelation that God has given to Paul, this was not contained in it. It's very, very likely that Paul's choice of singleness and celibacy came to him from the Lord and was his commitment to the Lord. And he is making his position as a concession that others could consider, but not as a command that you must obey in order to have a superior spiritual state before the Lord. That's kind of the way I would understand it and try to explain it. So the word concession here, as John MacArthur indicates, is not the preferred word for translating this, it's not like well if you have to do it then I'll concede that Paul is very simply saying this is my own position hasn't come to me by command of the Lord and I am presenting to, pre- presenting to it to you as such. So Paul is saying that he was aware of the goodness of being single and celibate yet was also very aware of the privileges and responsibilities that came within marriage. After all, Paul was a Jew, studied under Gamaliel, one of the most prolific and respected rabbis of his day. He knew the Jewish tradition, he knew the Jewish culture, he knew the Jewish expectations, and he did not say as a renegade, I'm not going to be a married man. He simply understood that in his service to the Lord, it was better for him to be single than it was to be married. His comments were not meant as a command for every believer to be married. His desire was that all men would be single like he is because of his calling to the Lord and his commitment to the Lord. Paul, when he was saved on the road to Damascus, heard from the Lord, I will show you how much you have to suffer on my behalf. Right? Paul had no idea what that meant. I don't know how much that impacted his perspective on being married. Or I don't know how much that eliminated the prospects of marriage for him. But I do know this. Paul began his apostolic ministry with a full understanding that bad times were ahead. But I am going to remain committed to the Lord. And Paul had this commitment to be single and celibate. He recognized the incredible hardship that would be his as a married man who had a family to take care of and to still serve the Lord the way that he was called to. The principle is this. Singleness is a gift from the Lord. It is not a command from the Lord. Not all are called to be married and not all are called to... To be single. In Paul's day, as in ours, there is an expectation that people be married, and being faithful to the call or the commitment to being single can be incredibly difficult amidst the cultural pressure that we're in. Somebody who says, I don't want to get married. Other people go, Really? What's wrong with you? Why don't you want to be married? There's got to be something wrong. Are you antisocial? I mean, are you a sociopath? What's your problem? Why don't you want to be married? Some people just don't want to be married. That's okay. Not sinful and not a command that you be married. So, Paul is referring to this unique gift of being single. And I was shocked. I've read this verse before, but I never really studied it. And Jesus says the exact same thing. Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept that. Now because we aren't immersed in that culture and don't understand the customs of the day, a eunuch was a male that lived a life of celibacy. So what Jesus says is that some men are born that way, they're born celibate, because of some kind of physical deformity. That's what it means to be born that way. There's a physical deformity that makes reproduction impossible, therefore, they are celibate. Secondly, some are made that way by men, Meaning that some were made eunuchs by men, meaning they were castrated by at the hands of men because they were going to serve as harem guards. Well, if you were going to be a harem guard, I would have to say that's a pretty steep price to pay. But some were willing to pay that price because that was the position they wanted to be in. And those who were lord over the harem didn't want other guys running amidst the harem. So a eunuch was someone who was made celibate at the hands of other men. Some were voluntarily celibate as a commitment to serving the Lord and His kingdom's work. It does not mean that they were physically castrated, but these individuals, like Paul, surrendered the ideal of married life in order to serve the law. Excuse me, in order to serve the Lord. This is what Paul has chosen to do. And this is what many, many missionaries choose to do today. I want to serve the Lord. I would love to be married. But I understand the challenges that would bring. And the divided attention and affection and commitment that I would have. And I just want to serve the Lord. It is a gift from the Lord. And that is why I believe Jesus finishes that verse by saying, He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Meaning, not all are called to being single and celibate. But those that are, and it's very difficult, God bless you for your service to the kingdom of God. So, we have each been gifted by God to serve Him. And our commitment should be to use this giftedness to the best of our ability. And Paul is talking about the gift of singleness and celibacy as it relates to him and his service to the Lord. And he is debunking some of the misapplied spiritualism of his day to say, Look, if you're married, enjoy your marriage relationship. It is not a superior state to be single. It's not a superior spiritual state to be celibate if you're married. If you're called to be single, that's fine. It's not a command from the Lord to be married, and it's not a command from the Lord to be single. But let each one do as he has been gifted by the Lord, as Jesus would say. Well, Paul has a lot more to say about marriage, and some very revolutionary things as we'll look at this in the in the next week or possibly two. But let's pray together as we finish our time of teaching. Father, how thankful we are.